Welcome to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog guardians. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm a certified professional dog trainer and I take my 10 years of training experience and I share easy to implement dog training advice with an emphasis on kindness and compassion. Welcome. I'm so excited to share more. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I have a special guest with me today who, can I call you a puppy guru? Is that okay? Can I call you a puppy guru? I would love that. Okay. (laughs) She's seriously the puppy guru extraordinaire, and she's going to share all of her expertise about socializing, training, living with puppies. So um, Julie, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to all of my listeners? Yeah, so um, I'm Julie Parker. I run Rocky Mountain Dog Training in Broomfield, Colorado. We are a team of four, and we really do socialize on early development and put a heavy emphasis on puppy socialization. Um, You know, as far as my credentials, I've been in the field about 13 years. Um, I am an honors grad from the Academy for Dog Trainers. I have my CPDT-KA, and I'm definitely an education junkie. There's never a time where I'm not enrolled in a continuing education course, so that's kind of how I roll (laughs) oh my god right like spending all of your profits from dog training on continued education yeah (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) oh my god okay so um I wanted to have you on just because socialization and puppy classes and stuff like that I feel like is so easy to mess up right like it's so easy to have the best intentions but not do it well and for everyone listening you probably have heard me talk about an extraordinary puppy socialization class that I took Waylon to when he was a puppy that was Julie's class um and you know when Waylon was a puppy obviously socialization was key for me right like being an American Staffordshire Terrier I wanted to make sure like being around other dogs like all of that was really good and I went to several people's puppy classes that I left but yours I always looked forward to because you managed them so beautifully right so um I just wanted to kind of give everybody just a little bit of a caveat there that I have personal experience with um Julie's guru uh nature um so let's let's define socialization a little bit more for the listeners because I think it's a term that's thrown thrown around all of the time right you got to socialize them you got to socialize them but but what does that even mean so maybe do you want to talk about just like the age range that we mean in an, in a dog when it comes to socialization and we can go from there. Yeah. So the age range actually starts around three weeks of age, but where we have the dogs with us and have the ability to make the most difference is typically from the eight week range until the 12 week range. And that's not to say that we don't allow dogs past that window. We actually do allow dogs up to 18 to 20 weeks of age. And the reason for that is that the window doesn't close completely. It just kind of, you get more bang for your buck in that prime uh, area, that prime window. And so um, socialization, really what it is, is it's teaching the dog about the world that they're going to live in. And in a group social setting, we're kind of looking at the commonalities amongst all dogs, and we're trying to hit those. Um, There's no socialization group that can hit every single thing. But really what we're looking to do is, is help the dogs feel safe in the bulk of the environments that they're going to be encountering throughout their life. Right. Okay. So let's, let's expand on that a little bit. So we have this opportunity, right? And like for most people, the eight to 12 to 18 range, 18 week age range is kind of depending. And we do that because if we do not socialize, then we run into animals who can be fearful or overly, well, I don't want to say overly anything, but they, they could be fearful. Like, can you help the listeners understand a little bit more about like, if we don't do this early socialization, what could potentially manifest in the dogs? Yeah. So let me kind of just set some expectations. So there are definitely different starting points for every dog that goes into social and that starts with genetics. Um, We don't know until we see those dogs, what skill sets they have, what things they may already have predetermined fear for. And so we're always trying to push the needle forward when we're doing socialization, but how far we get with 
that really what the dog's starting point is. So I just want to talk about that, that socialization isn't the be all end all to a healthy dog. And there's a little bit of a misconception about that. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So the things that we can see, we can definitely see a dog that doesn't want to be handled or maybe is really fearful of people. Um, That can actually be particularly isolating for the families and that they can't have visitors if they have a really unsafe dog. Um, It's high stress for the animals. So quality of life comes into play with them. Um, And also, you know, it's just, it's so much, it's such a, it's so much easier to try and kind of mitigate these issues early on and and help support the dog for life early on than it is to come back and do this stuff down the road. And it's also a lot less expensive to hit it early on. (laughs) So, yeah. And it's, and like you said, it's just more value, right? Like by getting an animal, an animal, a dog, I keep saying animals, dogs, by getting a dog, you know, who's a puppy in the eight to 18 week age range, we have this opportunity to create all this value and experience for them. So as they age, we decrease the likelihood of them having some of these troubling behaviors that makes it much more difficult to live with them and difficult to manage them and get them the care that they need. Yeah. And one thing that Rachel and I were talking about just before we started is, you know, people live really busy lives. And if we don't get these dogs socialized, sometimes their needs aren't getting met. You know, they, they need that social ability. They need to be able to go out in public and, you know, walk or go to dog parks or whatever. And if we don't get those dogs to the level where they're social, they suffer from that. You know, they, they're kind of stuck in a house with walls surrounding them all the time. So their world becomes really small. Right. And then there's a whole host of negative things that happen from there. Right. And everyone's quality of life significantly diminishes. And that's why I have so much respect for the work that you do, because I have clients who came to you at puppy classes and I see them as adult dogs. And I'm like, Hey, you know, does the puppy know a nose? Does your dog know a nose touch? Like, Oh yeah. Julie taught us that in puppy class. And like, I get to see the benefits of all these dogs who came through your puppy program. And I see them as adults and they're really quite a stable, stable adult dogs. Right. And I think that there's just so much value to that. Right. Because I think that when guardians are getting dogs as puppies, I don't know statistics on this. I guess this is just like my, my perspective, but I feel like that's probably the time that they're going to spend time and energy on training. Right. Like, okay, we've got this puppy, we got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So you catch them at that perfect time, right? We're going to get the most value and we have the most potential to help these dogs live happy, stable lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I do want to talk a little bit about socialization. So, you know, like I said, we have the opportunity to build these things from eight weeks on when the dog joins a household. For some families, it's 10 weeks on. Um, But there is stuff that they should be receiving at wherever the caregiver caregiver is. If it's the breeder or a rescue that has the litter, you know, there's stuff that they should absolutely be starting early. Um, They actually have the dogs for the bulk of their socialization window. So what we do on top of that is really icing on the cake if they've done a really great job of giving them an early start with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we were so spoiled, right? Because Waylon was with his breeder. She did puppy culture. I mean, she bent over backwards for these puppies to make sure they were getting all of this stuff so that when he came to me, I was able to be like, all right, he's a pretty confident dude. Can we start yeah. like doing some socialization? I remember one puppy class we went to, Julie. I don't know if you remember this, but there was like a, a doodle, maybe it's a sheep doodle or something. And Waylon kept like running and like, stomping on the dog and like pinning it down and I was like this seems like a really bad sign she's like no I you're like no I just think he thinks that this is a really fun game that we can redirect right now yeah Yeah, exactly yeah I do remember because Waylon he started out like pretty mellow you know what I mean I was like gosh this dog is awesome and not to say that he wasn't awesome later but man he was full of beans like in the upper age range and it was a lot of like okay let's go ahead and redirect to this and and, but that's important because you're teaching them not just to have confidence but also to how to engage in a way that's safe for you know all types of different breeds and all different types of play styles and so you know with dogs that start confident we actually get the ability to shape that that behavior it's not just about building confidence it's about building um sociability as well like a savvy sociability do you know what i mean yeah absolutely and i feel like um 
I mean, that's still evident today. Like Waylon really adapts well to different sizes and breeds of dogs. And I think that's because he had such great early experience with such a wide range of dogs and personalities and looks, right? Because, yeah. you know, if he only ever saw one dog in his life, seeing a sheepadoodle or a husky or a chihuahua could be like a very overwhelming thing. But man, we really saw the whole gamut of breeds. In your yeah. <laughs> I even remember having to recruit you a few times. I'm like, I need extra help. I need your extra hands. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, so can, let's talk a little bit more about, like, just a little bit. We don't have to get, like, too too in-depth about it. But can, can you just talk a little bit, like, what's happening psychologically for our young puppies, right? Like, their brains are young and more malleable there. Is, like, that what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. So, the, the socialization window was really kind of set up by nature and it gave dogs and all different types of animals the ability to get their bearings in the world that they've just come into. And so in that window, what they're learning is, is the things around them that are safe and the things that are around them that are unsafe. But when that window of uh, socialization starts to close, um, animals are really primed to actually have fear be their first response to things that they haven't been exposed to. And that goes way back to pre-domestication where, you know, something new entering their environment was cause for fear. It, they, it, they should fear it because it's a survival thing for them. And so that's something that we really exploit through the puppy socialization process. But also the other thing that we do is we want to start setting um, kind of patterns for the dog and establishing like, this is the expectation that you are absolutely welcome to have about the world around you, you know? And the reason that we do that is that when dogs can't really find their bearings or they're constantly getting exposed to things that are fear inducing, they have to continuously engage their, um, their, um, what's the word, executive function, you know, right. and that's really tiring for a dog. And that can have a lot of behavioral fallout just on its own because the dog is depleted. And so, you know, giving them that ability to, to say, okay, this is predictably something that's going to be safe for me. I don't have to think about it too much. I can just do my thing and live my life. It's a real gift for them. Um, also, you know, when they're in this stage, um, I want to talk about, um, they can be primed for negative experiences. And so with socialization, we have to kind of walk that fine line of like, we're giving them these nice exposures, either neutral or positive, but we don't want to overly expose them to negative things because they're sponges in that way as well. So it's something that you really want to think about when you're doing it. And then kind of building resiliency. So um, during the socialization process, you might think of it as each of these experiences is going into this bucket of like, this is what you have to form opinions on, you know? And if the dog has had, you know, 50 positive experiences with something and they have one negative one, they're going to bounce back from it a lot easier. We can also stretch their ability to uh, kind of manage discomfort to a degree, which I don't want to say that we should be exposing dogs to negative things. But, you know, when you're living life with dogs, they're going to experience stressors. And so what we do is we really try and look at those opportunities as shaping moments and say, how can we teach this dog how to react to these situations? Like it might be something that they have a little like, ooh, what's that kind of a response to? And we can say, you don't need to engage with that. Just check back in with me and we're going to go this direction and give you space from that. So it gives them those help, healthy coping skills. So, so yeah, so there's a lot of different things going on. And I think that some of it wouldn't necessarily be classified as socialization, but I think it all goes into that bucket of making the world predictable for the dog and kind of giving them the ability to feel safe in their surroundings. Yeah. And I think too, like, tolerance is like the word that comes to mind, right? Like I think that a dog who can tolerate a lot of things is much easier to live with in a lot of ways, right? Like a dog who can tolerate like, okay, I got to pick up your paw and look at it and pick something like a poke out of it. Like I got to do that. If we can teach them early on that that's like, oh, okay, they picked up my paw. It's not a huge deal. It just makes it so that like later in life when we need to get them some of this care, they already have this tolerance, right? It's not going to be grounds for growling or biting. It's going to be like, oh yeah, the human's doing this thing again. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it, it just, I don't know. I, I think, I think it's, there is kind of an, a myth that it's just about like dog play, you know, um, oh but God, right. 
but it's, there's so much to it. It's extensive. And then even like, I think about the stuff that we can't do in a group setting. I'm like, man, you, the families, you really need to get on board with some of this stuff because like, I don't have cats at the facility, you know, and I don't have an RV to teach you about road travel. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of things that go in and you really want to optimize it. And then seasonally, like that can impact stuff too, you know? Yeah, the winter puppies do not get the same level of experience that spring puppies do. Exactly. Yeah, I was just thinking about this with the storm rolling in. I'm like, I wonder if there's going to be thunder. Told the boyfriend, (laughs) you know, get the chewies ready. (laughs) Right. Just right in in that adolescent period. And I'm like, oh, fingers crossed, you know, because he didn't experience it because he was a winter puppy. So, yeah, right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about specifically your program. So tell everyone just a little bit more. So it's called Puppy Day School, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the Puppy Day School program is a half day drop off. And the reason that we settled on a half day is that puppies, they need sleep. They need a lot of rest at this age. Um, And so the way that we do the program is we we kind of set it up in sections throughout the day where in the morning we try to meet their social needs first, because if we meet the social needs, then everything else is easier. So they start with play group. And then once they've uh, finished their play groups, then they go into either individual uh, socialization sessions where we're working on stuff that's more specific to that dog, uh, or they go into training and then they flip flop that. And then we actually end up doing another social at the end of the day for most days. But we, on top of that, actually take a field trip weekly. And the reason that we take the field trip is that if we only get them exposure to the things inside of the building, that's not true socialization. And so we need to make sure that we're getting them out to different locations. Um, We also do the bulk of our people socialization. So we choose locations that are going to be more densely populated and make sure that they're getting those experiences uh, with, you know, with one of our team who is really savvy at being able to detect any signs of fear and adjust criteria as needed to help the dog stay under threshold or unfearful. Which is an art form, right? Like I think a lot of people think they're really good with puppies until they don't know what to do or they ignore something that happens with the puppy and use the like, oh, they just have to get over it. Right. Like I I hear that so much in like the socialization, like no, no, they just got to be there. They'll deal with it themselves. Like, yeah, maybe if you're really lucky with a really resilient puppy, that might be true, but that is certainly not true across the board. Yeah. Yeah. It's not at all. And and in fact, um, one of the things that I have grown really kind of passionate about, I, I definitely feel like there's kind of an idea that beginner trainers should be doing socialization. And if you're an established company, you put them on socialization first. But when you're doing socialization, you have to have an extensive skill set because you're not just doing the socialization aspect. For a lot of those dogs, you're actually doing true behavior modification, you know? And that's not something that a green trainer is going to have the mechanics to do successfully for some of those dogs. You know, some dogs are super forgiving, but some dogs aren't. And if you don't get it right, that's their future that's in your hands. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. And like, I remember, so when Waylon was a puppy, we went to a puppy class that was basically a free-for-all. And every all the puppies were loose in this giant room. And Waylon was practicing being a bully to another dog. And I, I picked him up and the trainer's like, no, just let him work it out. And I was like, uh, no. So we left, right? I just picked him up and we left. I'm a professional trainer. I knew right. better, right? Like, and not everybody has that skill set. So like, I just, I want to give just another caveat here for everyone listening that like a puppy socialization class could be the best or the worst thing to happen to your puppy, right? Like that's why I really wanted to have Julie on today to highlight everything she's doing to help you understand that like, if you were looking for a puppy class, you must be asking a lot of questions and making sure that these people are qualified of guiding you and making sure that your puppy is going to leave that class better than they went in, not worse, right? Because especially like, and I, I would love to hear your experience on this, right? Like, because I know you see such a wide range of dogs, but like, especially the dogs who are more fearful, right? Like more fearful than we would expect them to see. Can you kind of give the listeners like a little bit of an example of like how maybe you would manage a dog like that in your day school versus maybe like an overly confident dog? 
Yeah. And, you know, I think I should probably base my answer to what I would do actually in a regular socialization, like a drop-in socialization, because I think that's more accessible to people than the day school. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, Yeah. So when we see a dog that's really fearful, um, immediately we are setting up that dog a safe space. We're not going to run the risk of that dog getting creamed by an overly confident dog. Um, We need to start to teach them that they have nothing to fear. And if their first interaction is something where they do get scared, we've immediately confirmed that fear, you know, so you have to really be careful about that. And we tend to go conservative if it's a dog that we're seeing for the first time. Like if, if we're doing check-in or we're really watching for body language. And then when we're, we do the check-in, as you'll recall, there's about a 15 minute window where we're doing that. And we ask the participants to stay separated and not let the dogs engage. And one thing that people don't recognize, but that's going on is that one of us is at the front desk checking people in and the other person is scanning for the behavior of the group. So we kind of parse them into these loose groups, but when we're you know, not really having them engage. If we're seeing signs of fear, it's likely that we're going to see signs of fear when they're off leash. And so we immediately start to tailor that even further for those dogs that are showing those signs of fear. And before we even let dogs off leash, even if that dog is separated, we've already provided the handler instructions on how to work on uh, desensitization and counter conditioning. And, you know, in those classes, sometimes people don't bring treats. They don't realize that it's a requirement we have the tools on hand that we always supply them with to make sure that they get it right, right out the gate. And it's really critical. And one thing that I want to note about fearful dogs is you also have to be really gentle with their handlers, because a lot of times this is the first time that they're seeing fear is when they come to the socialization class. They've got this puppy at home that's doing stellar in the home environment. They're, you know, the puppy's probably terrorizing the adult dog at that point and they get them into the setting and they're like, I don't know what's going on. And they feel like their dog is abnormal, but they're not abnormal. A lot of dogs come into the group that way, you know? And so we do a lot of counseling for the families. We often recruit other people that have been involved in the socialization for a few more weeks and ask them to share like their experience, you know, oh, it took like, you know, two or three sessions and we started the same way so that it really normalizes it for them because they are so excited about that puppy that's in front of them that if they feel like something's wrong, it can actually really ruin their willingness to come back. And it can also really take the wind out of their sails for motivation. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Oh my God. Right. Like you have to be so gentle. And okay. So I remember my first puppy class, Waylon was actually like in the same little pen as like this teeny tiny chihuahua who had been there. It was like her fourth week and her owner's like, you should see her. She's getting so brave. And that was Waylon when he was like eight weeks. He was just a tiny wriggly puppy. And you're like, okay, yeah, like, let's not throw him in. He needs to like watch and like see some things here. And, you know, I remember how proud she was, right? The little chihuahua we were next to, because she's like, this week four, she's like walking around. She's sniffing. She's checking this stuff out. Like, this is a really good progress, right? So yes, right? Like we have to support people and and not- yes put label like oh your dog's fearful like okay don't scare people right like let's not scare the owner of the fearful dog yes and actually on the flip side of that sometimes we do have clients that will want to rush that process and so like you know we're behavior people so a lot of times we'll kind of see it the first time and maybe low-key address it but if we see them pushing that dog over and over, we absolutely employ DRIs. Like, can you go hold this fence and I'll work on, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we'll just give you a job to do so that we can make sure that we have the ability to protect your puppy. <laughs> so, so that's really common. And, and again, we, we really do try and navigate those things tenderly because that, that's our ultimate barrier to getting help to the dog. So Right. Yes. Because dogs live with people. We have to ultimately convince people of what needs to take place. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So with the the fearful puppies, what we do is we're working on, you know, Hey, any sort of engagement, you're going to follow with food. We explain to them, you're not going to feed for the dog, just hanging out, staring at you. But when they look towards the things that are, you know, potentially scaring them, we want you to give them a treat. And the reason for that is it makes the association of this scary thing predicts this really tasty thing for me. I'm starting to look forward to seeing that scary thing. And it starts to change their, you know, kind of the way that they see that. And what we are looking for 
as that process is playing out, as we're starting to look for stuff like um, air scenting, where, you know, maybe a dog runs past and the, the more fearful dog is kind of following the scent trail um, of that dog passing. And when we start to see that, we might recruit, you know, a kind of a mellower dog where we can hold a treat in front of them and have their butt facing the more fearful puppy so that the fearful puppy can get a really good sniff. And then we start looking for more loose body language. And we see that when we see that sometimes we're able to integrate a couple dogs at a time, but typically with a more fearful dog, we're just doing a one-on-one. And in a playgroup setting, like where we're doing the drop-ins, it's different because we also have other groups running at that point. And so often we'll put the other uh, students onto an activity that the dogs are leashed. And then that allows me to have time to focus on really facilitating that in a safe way, you know? And you know, it's just one of those things where the baby steps and the, the slower process actually makes it faster in the long run. So it's very, it's very carefully executed. There are a lot of balls in the courts at all time. Like, I don't think you ever saw me at day school where I wasn't sweating my fucking ass. Oh my <laughs> God, right? <laughs> Woo! Bobby's socialization is a physical task. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, it's mentally challenging. It's very physical. It's always hot, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So there, there's just a lot going on, but we, we both have to look out for the group, and we have to look out for every individual within that group. And I joke around all the time that, like, you know, I'm a very hyper vigilant person which is not ideal, you know, in my real life, but in socialization, it's been awesome for me. It serves you very well. It serves you very well. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I can attest to that, right? Because like I said, when he was, when he was going after the shoop-a-doodle, you're like, let's all go back on leashes. Let's work on laying down on a mat. You have mats, you pass them out. Like, I love how proactive you are about literally curating every single moment of those puppies experiences when they're in your facility. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and actually that I think is something that a lot of even really great trainers, I think are missing that element where one, they're not engaging the families, which as you know, when we have socials, I'm like, everybody is working as a team. If somebody is closer to your dog and we need to guide them out of play, do we have any food allergies? I need to know up front because otherwise we're all going to use our own treats. You know, it's like all hands are on deck when we do it. And we're narrating all of those interactions. And before anybody gets to do an activity, they have the outline of what to expect, what to do if it's not going as expected, you know, what not to do to, you know, avoid fear in the dog. And, and I feel like that is something that is lacking a lot of the time, you know? Yeah. Right. Like, and I don't think it comes from intention. Like, I don't think trainers are intentionally doing that, but it is just, it is a very, it takes a high level of proficiency and human and observation skills to successfully run a puppy class and you don't do it alone. Right. Like you're not running puppy classes alone. You always have backup. Right. And I think that that's another, like, there's a lot of room for error in that too. Right. If there's only one qualified professional in the room, (laughs) You, you, yes. have, you better have really good ground rules and communication skills if that's going to be successful. Yeah, I mean, normally we would always have three in the um, socialization, but occasionally we would have somebody that was sick. We could absolutely pull it off, but it was stressful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and, and there are a lot of socials that are just run with one trainer. And when you only have one trainer, oftentimes that means only one group. But for us, we like to split out into two to three groups to make sure that every dog has an appropriate match for them. Um, we, we really try to make sure that we don't have a dog that's ever having a negative experience. I mean, obviously, like little scuffles can happen if, you know, if maybe one dog comes on too strong, but we also use that as a teaching moment. It's still, you know, but that's not the norm. We're, we're trying to avoid that stuff. And so you have to have a lot of hands on deck and you have to have a lot of people that are really good with the clients and also are very, very adept at understanding body language. Yeah. And you have to have a lot of expense. <laughs> And a lot of X pens. Yes, absolutely. A lot. For everyone of who doesn't know what an X pen is, it's like a metal gate, right? So there's a lot of you use a lot of like separation and blocking spaces off to make sure that we're managing like the different groups and rotating dogs and protecting dogs who aren't ready to be in the groups and so on and so forth. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And even in situations like we might have three groups, but then we've got like, we always called them tweeners, you know, like where they were between two groups, um, where we might cycle that dog in where a dog that is kind of maybe making it so that they're less successful in that group can cycle out, maybe go for a potty break, and we can get them some play with the group that is more appropriate for them. So there is a lot of juggling, there is no like hard and fast rules as far as how to run a puppy uh, socialization group, you have to be incredibly dynamic when you're doing it and really flexible. <laughs> so. Oh my God. Right. Cause it's going to change every time because as puppies mature and age personality changes too, right? Like yeah. the same puppy is not going to need the same thing every single class either. Right. Exactly. Right. And, you know, going back to some stuff that we do that is a little bit of outside of the socialization realm, but that can really make a big difference for the dog is we do start to install little expectations. um, And we do this in a way where we're shaping the client. So for instance, if we've been on a break and we're getting ready to let the dog off leash again, um, we actually start to shape in making sure that the dog orients when the leash is off. So unclip the leash, feed your dog five treats, because we want to make sure that the dog is not immediately getting unhooked and, you know, scurrying off into the environment for reinforcement. That that could be a huge problem if the leash ever fails. So we build in stuff like that. We work on with, especially with some of our students that were in socialization and training, we work on a lot of recalls in that group because it's a very high distraction setting, but we've also given the dog what they need so they can practice in that session. You know what I mean? They've had the socialization. Let's practice some skills here. So you have the foresight, right? Like you have the foresight to help guardians understand that like, if we're just taking the leash off and it's like a WWE match, we, you know, that that's going to cause problems later. So you're able to help clients understand like just those simple things they can be doing so that like when the dog is more mature and maybe they're going to the dog park, they have all these skills to fall back on. Yes, exactly. Which I think, you know, that's where it really helps to hire an expert. Um, and, and I think that's hard because this, it really is hard to portray to families the importance of getting it right. No matter how many ways you spin it, they do know somebody who has a serious opinion about socialization, you know, and oftentimes- Everyone fancies themselves a dog job, expert, don't they? Yes. Everyone fancies themselves a dog expert. Yes, it's very hard. <laughs> so, yeah, that part is really tiring, but but it, there's benefit to it. It's, um, you know, I, I always tell people you're setting this dog up for like the next 15 years, put the investment in now, do it right. You know, it's going to save you a lot of heartache down the road. So, yeah. Okay. And then, um, let's talk a little bit more about like some of the other things you, you teach to your, your clients and the, the puppies in turn. Right. So like I was saying, we did mat work in your class. I mean, yeah. he was like nine weeks old and you're like, Oh, look, there's these cozy places. And honestly, in puppy class, a cozy place, it was really pretty easy for the puppies to be like, Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, so we definitely teach them um, about some subtle exercises. And sometimes if we don't, actually, I'll tell you that that the reason that we do that in some groups is that some of those groups are really, really rowdy and they need a more structured <laughs> activity, you know? Um, Everyone but, is so surprised to hear that Waylon was in the rowdy group, aren't you guys? I know, so I know. Um, but yeah, so, so that's not always in there, but we do try and incorporate that when we can, but we always work on getting them used to different handling. So we always do handling exercises in there. Typically we'll hit one or two a day. We don't like run through everything because if you try to run through everything, people start to rush stuff. Um, we work on, uh, you know, equipment and getting them used to climbing on stuff, how to safely dismount from stuff, um, weird things underfoot, um, what else? A lot of wobbly, different types of things. And then um, one of the areas that I feel like might be a little bit controversial, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, is we do sometimes actually have other people handle dogs. But the but when we do that, I want to note that we have really strict guidelines about that. Like if the dog is showing signs of fear, we're not going to pass them all on to somebody else. And if somebody is working with a dog and all of a sudden they're flying towards the end of their leash they're back to their human, you know, that dog needs to know that they can get themselves safe. So there's a, there's that, that we do, but it's really structured. And so there's like stuff that we do that I think would probably be controversial in the wrong setting. Except for, (laughs) you you know, all the caveats and the whys to when you would and you wouldn't. Right. But I think kind of to circle back to your point about like, I feel like public, the public's perception is like puppy classes is so puppies play, (laughs) right? Right. Oh yeah. We just let puppies play. But like, 
that is a missed opportunity. If all that's happening at a puppy class is puppies are just like running wild and practicing bullying each other, that's going to cause a whole host of issues in, later in life. But like in a puppy class where a puppy is learning that dogs are fun and safe, people are fun and safe. They often get cookies for checking in yeah. with people. Like it's getting handled, getting touched by people is okay. Right. Maybe even fun. Like they're so simple, right? It's such yes. simple stuff that, I mean, Waylon is an extraordinarily social dog. And I think a lot of that has to do with him going to puppy class and having all those brilliant experiences with people and other dogs. And, oh, yeah, the lady touched my ear. She gave me some cookies. It's not a big deal, right? Like, yeah. So many dogs struggle at the vet. I know everyone listening. I did an episode recently called Dogs Who Struggle at the Vet, right? And puppies, we have this opportunity to prevent them from being those dogs who struggle at the vet by just having those experiences of, you know, the next puppy parent touching or doing a little bit of mild handling and doing some reinforcing, that stuff compounds. Yeah, absolutely. And that's even stuff that you can be working on at home. Um, you know, like the scale is also a big trigger for a lot of dogs to like get out a cookie sheet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's, that's what you're going to be shaping on, you know? Um, but you know, there, there's, there's stuff that they can do at home, but also the, the stuff that we do there, it's, I don't, I, I, I don't know that some of our clients even recognize until afterward what they're actually receiving, the ones that tend to know best are ones that have had dogs with behavioral problems previously, and they're trying desperately to avoid that in the future. And they see their dogs blossoming into these really stable, happy dogs. And um, I actually kind of get joked up even talking about it because it's really like the biggest gift that you can give them. It's the, the one thing that you have the ability to make the most impact on. And it's, sometimes hard because people will be more focused on training <laughs> you know what I mean? right right There's you're like you can't see you can't see the overarching thing here and like I mean Julie that was me right I had two male Amstaffs prior to Waylon that were both dog aggressive and when I brought Waylon into my life I was like I don't want that again I love those dogs but that took a really high toll on my quality of life right like managing and caring for a dog of that caliber and it's like, you know, showing up to a puppy class, I just defaulted. I'm like, whatever Julie says, I'm going to do it, right? Because I knew, like, I knew that if he didn't get that early socialization, he came from good genetics, but still, right? Like, yeah. there's no guarantees. And yeah, I think that a lot of my listeners have challenging dogs. So I hope that this is an inspiration for after they've loved and cared for that dog and they leave this earth, like, you can start with a puppy and set them up so it doesn't have to come to really intense, serious behavior problems, right? Like we do have a lot of options for preventing a lot of that stuff from manifesting in dogs. Yeah, it's funny. So I was kind of like you previously, I had a lot of dogs with behavioral issues. And I mean, like behavior issues, like really serious stuff. And it was very isolating for us. And like you, I totally love those dogs. But for one of them in particular, his world was extremely small. And that was hard sometimes because you're trying to get really creative about ways to get his energy needs met. And if you're not doing that, there's even further fallout with that. And so recently I actually purchased my first, um, you know, really researched dog (laughs) and I got a rat terrier and after I had raised him through the socialization process and he was about a year and a half old, I got asked to do a piece for, um, uh, Chewy. It was yeah. a blog on rat terriers. And when I wrote the piece, I was describing his temperament and what I'm seeing with the other rat terriers that I had seen through my program. And a really um, involved rat terrier person wrote me and said, you're making these dogs sound like friggin' goldens. They're not goldens. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, with socialization, they really can be like that. They can be really social. You know what I mean? Right. And it was just so funny to me, but that my little ratty he's like the most happy boy ever you know and he's so stable so yeah right and I think you know we all deserve to have stable dogs yeah right and like you know I know that you work with behavior problems too right and like I'm sure that that was probably correct me if I'm wrong but that was probably a big motivation for so much of the puppy work you do now is realizing like the impact we can have when we start super early 
Yeah, that's my whole passion is on the prevention end. I did a lot of behavior early on and it's so hard, you know, I'm, I love those cases, but they are emotionally really difficult to handle. And um, I got to the point where I just, I felt sad a lot of the time, do you know? And yeah. so that's where prevention really came in for me. I mean, it was always part of the programs, but it's become my true focus at this point. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I wanted to circle back to this because I know you mentioned this, but I think that this is really important for everyone to understand. Socialization is not a guarantee. Never. Right. Like it's never a guarantee that we're going to forego things and dogs are not going to do X, Y, or Z. It is just the most value we can get. And it's worth the time and energy because it can yield all of this stuff, right? There's no guarantees, but, um, and, you know, I don't think we have to talk about this in too much detail, but I know you're kind of talking about breed and stuff like that. Do you want to just speak to just like some of the other influences that are at play in like the socialization that isn't like the controlled stuff we're talking about, like the neutral or positive experiences, like genetics, how they're feeling physically, environment, stuff like that? Yeah, so definitely the genetics factor, um, you know, the epigenetics in particular, um, where if the parents have had a negative experience, it can be passed down towards the puppy. And inherited um, in DNA, which is so crazy. Oh, my it's God. crazy. Yeah, and I feel like we only know the tip of the iceberg now. So I'm excited to see where the research takes us on that. But, um, but yeah, stress in utero, in utero is another really big one. So, um, you know, if you've got a, a litter that is being, um, you know, I guess what's the word coming to term and then um, birthed in a very high stress setting that can absolutely impact the dog's long-term behavior. Um, early experience is huge. If that puppy is out in a garage or somewhere where like at a pet store where they're constantly being grabbed and have no, um, no say over their own body, no agency, then that can be a problem for them. Um, and, and then also just the self piece, like what is this dog's particular makeup? You know, um, what things is this dog disposed for, you know, and what's hard about that is that when you have a dog where you don't know what their background is, sometimes all of those things are at play. And sometimes you won't even see any sort of um, indication of them until the dog is past the socialization window, actually more towards like the two years of age window, you know. And so what we want to do is, you know, think of socialization as like, if you have, if you don't know any of these things about this dog, we want to assume that they're a possibility and hit these things harder, you know? And then if we've got a dog that we know all of the background and everything checks out, we want to take what their foundation is and kind of launch it as far as absolutely possible, you know, and build off of it as much as possible. Because, you know, you may have done all of your homework and think that you're getting lassie and you're not, you know, like something comes into play. And so you still want to make sure that you're doing that stuff. And then you may, the other thing that's funny actually is that you may get a dog that has all of these things that would indicate that they should be a really stressed dog and they are lassie. You know what I mean? So yes. Oh my God. Right. This, like it can be either end of the spectrum, right? Like, yeah. Which I mean, shout out to resilience in dogs. Like, wow. (laughs) I know. I totally agree with you. I'm like, why don't I have this resilience? <laughs> so, but yeah. Um, yeah. So what we do is we, we kind of, you know, we do take into account those things and sometimes we'll see that stuff early, but we don't make any assumptions. We want to just, you know, continue to build as many positive experiences as possible. And of course, if we see fear, we want to move that to less fearful as much as possible. And that doesn't mean that we can make a dog that is profoundly fearful totally quote unquote normal. Um, but we can make them feel more safe and we can also coach the family on how to help maintain that safety for that dog, you know? So. Yeah. And I think for everyone listening, if you are interested in, in rescuing a puppy, right? Like rescuing a puppy from a reputable rescue organization, ask where was the puppy born? What happened in those weeks before they came to you? And I'm sure Julie, you see this a lot too, but like In Colorado, lots of puppies come here on transport in the critical socialization window and in turn are terrified in the car, right? And it's one of those that like, if you tell your trainer that right away, like, listen, they were transported last week and we're already noticing that the, the car is kind of scary. 
we can at least try, right. To like backpedal and change their interpretation of being in the car. But like, I mean, for a majority of the wonderful Colorado families who adopt these dogs, going to the mountains in the car is part of their ideal life. Right. And You know, it's like, I understand that there's a lot of other factors and rescues can't always like avoid the transport in that early socialization window, but that's something I see just come up all of the time. Yes. And we'll even see stuff like we can sometimes in the, especially when we were running the drop-ins, we would get dogs that we could immediately tell the rescue that they came from, um, just based on their behavior. Like there's one rescue group around here that it was almost inherently every dog that came from that rescue had resource guarding and it was due to how they were fed, you know, which was, you know, not enough. And then fighting their needs to get enough. And so we, we saw that constantly and it was like, Hey, you know, where did this puppy come from? Or we would see it on their, you know, vaccination records. And it was like, Oh, make sure, make sure we don't set these things out. Uh, make sure that when we're distributing food, nothing's falling on the floor, you know, stuff like that, because it became such a big issue. So those things definitely play in and you want to make sure that whoever is rearing that puppy, whether it's a breeder or a rescue group, they're taking the the kind of the gravity of the responsibility seriously. Right. And if you're in a situation where your rescue, your breeder did not do that and you have the puppy and you're doing your rest anyways, trying to be as open and upfront with your trainer about all of the information you know about what's been happening in this puppy's life. Because if we have that information, we can pivot and adapt the plan to acknowledge who that individual puppy is and what they've been through so far. Right. But it's one of those that like, if we're out, like we're long out of the socialization window, we don't have that same potency and trying to like modify how they feel about certain things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes too, if you get a dog that, you know, you bring it home and you're like, Oh, everything's cool. And then it's not cool. You know, all of a sudden all these things are coming out. You, you want to definitely talk to your trainer about them, but you also want to work with them to prioritize the things that are going to be most important, you know, Um, because it can be overwhelming for the family to try and tackle all of the things at once. And so we want to hit the most critical pieces Or if you're one of those people that does have the ability to hit everything, make sure that you're receptive to everything that they're telling you, because now is the time that you can make the biggest impact. You know, like I said, prioritize the socialization over anything else. Well, besides bite inhibition, but yeah, you know. Yeah, right. So uh, I want to share just a really quick story. So I had a lovely family. They adopted Well, they purchased a Vishla from a quote unquote breeder. Unfortunately, they kind of realized after the fact, and they've already like fallen in love with this puppy that not really falls under the label breeder, more of kind of like a backyard breeder. Right. So anyways, the dog is there. The dog was eight weeks old and was resource guarding so intensely that he was intently biting the owners for approaching. Right. Like, I mean, happening at like eight weeks old, they picked up the puppy. They were on their way home and they saw it and they're like, oh my God, what does this mean? And you know what we did is we literally just worked on like a very simple protocol to help him feel better and realize he doesn't have to protect things. I saw him recently. He is three years old and he does not resource guard anymore. Right. But that was something that they were like, okay, listen, questionable breeder. We love this dog. He's ours now. What the hell do we do? Right. And with that early intervention, we really were able to shape who this dog became and in turn make him much safer to live with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something that I think that also can sometimes happen is, you know, socialization is critical, but when you do have like a safety issue at hand, if your trainer refers you to somebody that specializes in that particular behavior, trust the trainer and go to that person, you know, um, like we get a lot of people that just want to use basic manners to manage that stuff. And it doesn't even apply. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, like it's basically useless, right? Like it's not going to get you where you want to go. It's not going to get yeah. you where you want to go. And it's yeah. like, you know, there's a time and a place for teaching manners for sure. But like, do you want to kind of speak to that? Like how, your like personal views on like teaching basic manners in the socialization window? Yeah. So, I mean, there are things that we teach, like we do teach touch in the um, socialization classes. We also teach a default sit. Um, It's funny because there's stuff going around about not teaching sits, but to me, one of the ways to help puppies is to help them manage what their people's expectations are. And most clients 
pet dog trainers, they're going to want their dogs to sit. And so we teach them default sit behaviors. And when they approach people, if they sit, they're going to get rewarded. Everybody in the group is kind of, you know, engaged in that. And I, I think that, um, as far as the skills go, they definitely pick things up very quickly as puppies, but you know, it's, it's still not the priority. Like do, do both if you have the ability and a lot of families do have that ability but if again if you have to prioritize socialization is always number one yeah. you can learn yeah. behaviors forever um the other thing is is those fearful you know we were talking about the fearful dogs um those dogs you really need to focus on those specific behaviors in the socialization window where you can push them as far as possible before that window closes and the skills that we teach when they're in a fearful state, they're not thinking about sit. They're thinking, how do I get out of here so I can feel safe again? And I think people think, well, if I have the ability to give them, you know, a, a cued behavior, they're not going to do the fearful stuff. No, that's not true at all. You know, they're, they're definitely wanting to get out of the situation. They're not going to listen to you. Um, feeling safe is a much higher reinforcer for a dog than eating a piece of food, you know? So, um, so if you think about it that way, that's, that's why we want to address it early. And also where skills are important for dogs, but they're not the top priority. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's totally how I feel. Right. And like, obviously as a trainer in Wayland's early days, I probably pushed it a little bit further than I needed to. in like the trained skill department, I've grown a lot since then the next puppy will benefit a lot from that. But everyone, I I really just want to like drive this message home that your puppy feeling safe, comfortable, confident, or neutral in a vast majority of their situations is the objective right? Like it's not about them listening to you. It's not about them doing what you say. It's so much more about like, okay, can they feel comfortable and like their brain actually be in a place that then we can build on more of the like listening and responding to cues and so on and so forth. Yeah. And actually when you get them to that level of comfort and you're still doing socialization, those skills come really easy. You know what I mean? You're not competing with all the stuff in the environment. So it's, it's a great time to do training, but it's, again, it's not the priority, but you can still integrate pieces in to help the dog function. And that's where it comes into setting those patterns is making sure that the dog knows, Hey, when you approach these people, you know, get a sit from them. So they start to expect to sit beforehand rather than jump up or, you know, um, when you leash up the dog, like that, my hands coming over your head doesn't need to be scary. I'm going to follow this every single time with food. Or, you know, if I, if I'm managing a play group and somebody has to pick up a puppy, like we don't want the dog to start to be fearful of people approaching them. So pick them up and, you know, follow with food. And that stuff is actually considered training, you know? Um, but again, it's all about setting patterns for the dog and, and the stuff that they need to know to not get themselves into trouble and to really kind of help them meet the expectations that other people are going to have for them. I don't even think that people always know what their expectations are going to be, but we want to kind of, think about that on their behalf, because if that dog doesn't know, and we're not in their, the picture anymore, there's going to be problems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I would love, I would love to hear your feedback on this because I see a lot of adult dogs who are averse, have a harness aversion, right? Like they don't like having the harness put on, they don't like the way it feels. So like, do you want to just kind of speak to that a little bit? Like your suggestion would be to like puppies and harnesses and their guardians, like how, how do we do that? Yeah. So, so actually it's ideal at three weeks of age for them to start getting equipment on them. And that goes back to the breeders or whoever's caregiving at that point. We really want them to start that foundation. However, that's not always our ideal, you know, they come in and they haven't had that exposure. And so sometimes what we do is we just start by introducing the equipment without actually contacting the dog. We just hold it up and they look at it and we follow with food. And when that's going well, we would hold it open and place a treat through. So they're not even having to go through it. They just see what it looks like open as they're approaching it. And then slowly we're teaching the dog to kind of move their body into it. But when we do that, the dog always gets to set the pace. So if they say to us through their body language, this is too far too fast. We say, okay, we're going to move back and we move back immediately. We don't push it. We want to make sure again, that we're honoring the dog's wishes and honoring their comfort level. And we just adjust on the fly based on what their, their body language is telling us. And if we do that, eventually we're able to get the equipment on them, you know, and, and pretty quickly, actually, if they haven't had previous exposure to it, there are also, um, there's another train of thought with it, like for a collar, for instance, which tends to be less, um, 
invasive intrusive I guess yeah. invasive, that's the right word yeah um with something like that a lot of times we'll just ask the person to put that item on and habituate to it but when we are asking a dog to habituate we're typically pairing it with something the dog already enjoys so like the collar goes on and then you get to chew on a chewy you know things like that um but yeah I would definitely say like the harnesses tend to be the bigger issue collars sometimes can be an issue but most of the time they they do habituate to them so. And I think it's one of those things too, that like when we have a puppy who's in this socialization window, right? So presumably like three weeks, like 18 ish weeks, if mm-hmm. we take the time to not rush that, we're going to have a lifetime of the dog being tolerant of it. But totally. it's like, right. If you have an eight week old puppy and you slap the harness on and they didn't like it, you're going to be backpedaling and backpedaling and backpedaling. Right. Yeah, so you don't like, want to be chasing that dog around to take him for a walk, like for the next 15 years, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. So it's like, there's so much value in really slowing the pace and being mm-hmm. like, this is what the puppy told me how they feel. How can I slowly help them feel differently? Because if yeah. you can do that, oh, it's going to save everyone so much heartache going forward, right? Like just those baby, baby steps of like, okay, cool. You didn't like the harness. Let's spend three days working on it. And I mean, obviously three days is a ballpark here. <laughs> There's no guarantees yeah. there, but you know, it can be that simple, right? Like puppies are really moldable, right? Their brains are valuable. And it's like, if we can just be a little bit smarter and a little bit more patient, we have a lot to gain. And obviously so does the dog. Yeah. And actually, um, I just want to mention one quick resource, if that's okay. Yeah. So on, on our website, we have a trainer's resources page. And in that there's actually a handout for desensitization and counter conditioning. Now counter conditioning is what we typically do when the dog is already fearful, but uh, I would actually just scrap the title and consider it like desensitization and conditioning, <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Um, because we're introducing them to it for the first time, but there's rules around um, how to do that appropriately and when to adjust and when to make it easier and when to just stay at the same level. And it's a really easy template for people at home to follow if they're introducing new equipment or new experiences so that they can make sure that they get it right just based on what the puppy is telling them. Right. Okay. So Julie, if people are like, cool, so a puppy class like this doesn't exist in my area. (laughs) Yes what what would your suggestion be for them right like outside because again like I don't want everyone listening to feel like I have to get to a puppy class no you have to get to a superstar puppy class or puppy program like Julie is running okay if it's a not a good puppy class I don't know you tell them my my suggestion would be just don't even go but I totally agree with you. And I think we should talk about red flags in a minute. But yeah, um, if you can't get to a puppy class or they don't exist in your area, your biggest thing is to make sure that you get some you know, online resources that can walk you through that. Um, there are online courses for that. Um, Rachel and I were talking about, I really need to build one. For this yes, everyone, I'll let you know when Julie creates her. <laughs> yeah, but um, but also um, doing a lot of reading from some of the more savvy people. And, you know, maybe Re- Rachel, can you throw up some resources later on that? Yeah, for sure. We'll include a bunch in the show notes, right? Just so that yeah. you all have options. But I feel but, like... Uh, But but yeah, making sure that you're getting them out of the house. We, you know, by and large trainers don't consider anything happening inside of the house to be true socialization because the dog will just habituate to that eventually. Um, It's really the stuff that's going to happen outside of the household. And that means, you know, if you're running errands, taking the dog with you and spending an extra five minutes, just letting them um, check out their surroundings. So getting used to different environments in that way, Um, you know, taking their meals, uh, maybe take their evening dinner to the park and just sit on the bench away from like the major activity. And then when they're checking stuff out, following with part of their food is a really big thing. The more fearful they are, you may have to go up the pay scale as far as reward. I shouldn't even call it a reward because we're doing a different type of training. But anyway. And also, like, if you have a super fearful puppy, you need to hire a trainer, right? Like, end of story. If you have a super fearful puppy and you're struggling with socialization, you definitely need to talk to a professional ASAP. But I mean, just to kind of piggyback up what you're saying, like, I think just the envisioning, like, what is what's normal about your life? Do you go to your family's houses? Do you mountain bike? 
Do you go camping, right? Just thinking about those things and doing as much as you can in that early socialization window to include your puppy in those experiences, right? Yes, and and yeah, and I think too, like we're, you know, a lot of families are fighting what they're hearing from the breeder or the vet. I think that a lot of people don't actually know what the modern um, kind of protocols are. And so they're keeping the puppies at home long past the socialization window, but they absolutely need to be out of the house. There are truly disastrous uh, effects that can happen if you're just having the wall the walls of your house be that dog's environment during that period yeah right and like obviously don't take your young puppy to the dog park and set them down like that could be dangerous for disease but like by and large your your puppy having their first round of vaccinations that's going to protect them from those things in the environment right like the risk of infectious disease versus the risk of all of the nasty things that, that can happen without socialization is just I mean, there's really no comparison, right? Like yeah. your puppy, you need to take your puppy, you need to get them out. And I think a lot of that is natural. I think we just kind of intuitively do that. So I really just want to empower everybody listening that like, if you have a puppy and there's not a superstar puppy class, you can take them to, that doesn't mean that they're not going to get like the socialization that they need, right? That's not at all what we're saying. It's just it that. It's different hands. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I think just taking your puppy with you, letting them see people going to grandma's house, going to watch the kids play soccer, right? Like just simple stuff like that. And again, everyone, if your puppy is showing a lot of fear, contact a trainer. That's way beyond the scope of what we can talk about in this. But I think that there's a lot of things that we intuitively do that we don't think of as socialization that absolutely are. Yeah. And I think too, like, you know, even before you bring your puppy home, if you're thinking about getting a puppy, starting to learn about body language is key because a lot of the things that dogs do, um, you know, really early on in fear is it's not super noticeable unless you've got a trained eye for it. But if you've got that trained eye, you can actually, uh, you know, prevent them from getting into more fearful situations or when they're just kind of trying to figure out like, is this safe? Is this not safe? you can help them get to like, yes, this is definitely safe very quickly by knowing their body language. So yes. definitely a good, good thing to get savvy on real quick. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about some few, a few red flags and a puppy class that would make you be like, cool. So no, we're definitely not going to do this. Yeah. So definitely we talked about this one earlier, but minimal or no intervention is a huge problem for a lot of puppy classes. Um, also when you've got really confident dogs, um, sometimes trainers will use, um, you know, a situation where that dog is showing fear to kind of quote unquote, take them down a notch. That's not ideal either. We don't want dogs correcting other dogs over and over and over again. And we don't want another dog to have that responsibility. Um, allowing heavy corrections of any kind is not really it should not be permitted period. It's if somebody completely else is, unethical. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And not only that, if a stranger is doing that to your dog, you've just taught your dog to be fearful of strangers, you know? Um, so that's a big one, you know, trying to avoid places that have like yelling or manhandling of the puppies. Like we like to do guide outs with treats with them um, because we don't want them to start to get fearful of hands coming forward, making sure that they are involving um, food items or whatever it is that the dog finds rewarding into the experience for them. And then also making sure that it's safe. So there's double barriers for them, making sure that they have equipment for dogs to tuck under. It's not just like this wide open space where they can just get into this like huge chase game that turns predatory. Like we don't want that. We want a lot of little pieces of um, equipment that's going to kind of break up that play and they get little pauses in the play. And then last, I do want to just talk about just um, making sure that they're setting both realistic and um, kind of mitigating unrealistic expectations. So not, you know, giving people the idea that this is the end all be all for the healthy dog. It's just part of it, but it's a huge part of it. Yeah. And I also just want to empower everyone that if you're in a puppy class and you thought you did your research and you're there and it, you hear some of these red flags, just pick up the puppy and leave. Just go. Yeah, totally. Right? I mean, like, don't say don't have any hard feelings because again, this is the next maybe 15 years, maybe 20 years with this dog. Like at that point, you're not going to be thinking about what you should have done. You, you, you know what I mean? Like don't dwell on that. Just get out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Just bolt. Because like I said, right just like you're saying big open space chasey chasey predatory behavior whoop, I picked Waylon up and we left I'm like this is not good and it's not a, it wasn't it wasn't even just about Waylon right like the other dog was getting totally pummeled and yeah. you know the people trusted this trainer to like give them a good socialization experience right so you know there are a lot of extraordinary trainers Julia is obviously my favorite that's why she's with us today but 
it takes a lot, right? It takes a very high level of skill and knowledge and finesse. And if the trainer doesn't have that, just go, (laughs) right? Because you're going to be so much better off than being in a puppy class where your dog is practicing all this stuff that you don't even realize is going to come and bite you (laughs) in the Yeah, and I would would even go so far as to say, if you're starting to feel uncomfortable and passionate, just get out of there right then. Because I, I truly you just can't undo fear that gets installed like that. You know, you can't do, I shouldn't say you can't undo it, but you can't undo it quickly. And so you're really trying to prevent that from ever getting installed. And if you feel like that's even a risk, just bail. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, now is the time to make the right choices for the puppy, the right choices for the puppy. Okay. Oh my God, Julie, this was such an amazing conversation. Okay. So can you tell all of my listeners how they can connect with you? People who are local, can you tell them a little bit more about, puppy day school and kind of like the availability and stuff like that? Yeah. So, um, we are in Broomfield, Colorado. Um, our website is Rocky mountain dog training.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and you can catch us on any of those. Although I will tell you email is always the best <laughs> as far as contacting me. Um, and then as far as our puppy day school, we, uh, it runs year round, um, half days, Monday through Thursday. Um, but they, we do typically schedule about a month in advance. And so, um, in our higher peak months, it can go up to two months in advance. So it's something that you definitely want to jump on when you're expecting the puppy rather than after the puppies come home. Um, you know, it's a great program. It, you know, I put both of my most recent puppies through it and um, I, I feel like it's the most, it's, it's like my, it's my baby. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever produced. You know, so, well, yeah. and I mean, I think like the extraordinary ripple effects that you probably won't even see, but you know, are going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, seriously, I've worked with so many of your clients who came to you as puppies and I see them as like four or five year old dogs. And they're, I mean, I can visually see, I can observe how they benefited from being a part of your puppy program, right? So I don't think Broomfield, Colorado understands how lucky they are to have you. (laughs) I know. And I do want to just note the other thing about having a trainer do this is that there's a lot less frustration involved. Puppies are hard work, no matter who you are. I mean, they're hard work for me and I do this for a living. Um, So allowing a professional to take the reins on this is extremely helpful. And it can actually help your relationship in the long run because you're not getting uh, to your wit's end with that stuff. So. Yeah, I'm really looking forward. Everyone, <laughs> just a little secret here. We will be getting a puppy. It's going to be a couple of months, but I'll be sure to get on the wait list so that oh, when awesome. time we can get her in. Oh my God. That's Julie, awesome. thank well, you so you. much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at agoodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at agoodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, It's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.